2 Thessalonians 1.3. Welcome back to Bible time. We are going on with our study in the books of Thessalonians, First and 2 Thessalonians. Here in chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Now this verse breaks down real easily into three groups. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, being the first part and this is the source this is acknowledging and giving thanks to God for the for God being the source of all good in the church the second part here is as it is meet because that your faith groweth exceedingly and here we see the evidence of true good in the church adherence to the word of God and thirdly, we have, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. The charity of you all toward each other aboundeth. And this is the exercise of faith, the fruit of God's working in the church. So we have the source of all good in the church and thanksgiving for it. We have the evidence of true good in the church, which is adherence to the word. And we have the charity of every one of you all toward each other abounding in the church. And this is the fruit of God's good working in the church, the exercise of faith. Let's get, um, let's pray and get started today. Father, in Jesus name, we pray that you'd bless the preaching of your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would anoint your word and the message that's preached here. We pray, Lord, that every soul that hears these words, Father, would be brought into a, a vital um, confrontation with you, Lord. Lord, a confrontation with you, Father. We don't, Lord, even really want, Lord, to experience you in any other way, Father, unless you first confront us, Lord, because that's what you do. You convince men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And we pray, Lord God, that you'd bring us into a confrontation with the reality of your word, and that you would bring our false beliefs under scrutiny of your word, that you would challenge our faith, Lord, that you would examine us through your word. You told us to examine ourselves. We pray that your word would do what only your word can do and divide asunder soul and spirit, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, that you would expose, Lord, the areas of our heart where we have lied to ourselves and that you would bring the light of the gospel to bear in the darkest corners of our heart. Show us, Lord, if we're real. Show us, Lord, if we're real but backslidden or turned aside. Show us, Lord, if we're, if we're in the midst of turning aside, Father, though we may be real and we may be following you, Lord, show us if we're in the midst of our hearts turning away from you expose our hearts today through your word father i pray lord that all that hear this message father both here in this building and lord online as they download it and listen to the recording of this message father i pray that they that their hearts would be pricked and that you would deal with us and confront us lord that we would not be the same at the end of this message as we are at the beginning father for your word is quick and powerful your word is alive father and lord Lord, in our sins, we're dead in trespasses and sins, but you've quickened us together if we're born again, Father. Lord, make it evident, Father, even as this verse speaks of, give us evidence, Father, of our faith. Give us evidence of your working in our lives, and we'll give you all the thanks and all the power and all the glory, Father, will go to your name because thou alone art worthy. We love you today, Father, and we thank you for your word, and we ask you to change us with it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first part here is thanksgiving. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. Notice that word bound. The word bound is to be tied up. The word bound would be to uh, when you seize someone and you don't want them to escape, you tie them up, and you might tie them to a post. You might put them in a prison cell or something like this. Here he says we are bound to thank God always is for you. He's what he's saying is that there's no other godly response that can possibly be, um, be entertained for the great work that God is doing at the church at Thessalonica. Now in modern day terms, if the apostle Paul was running around the nation, of America today and trying to do a work for God and sending out prayer letters and a church like Thessalonica had been birthed through his labors and God had used him to start it um, in modern day America he would send constant reminders to his supporting churches of his great efficacy as an evangelist as his incredible ability as a church planter and he would constantly remind everybody of the great work that he did but instead here the apostle Paul begins his letter to the 
the church of the Thessalonians by saying, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet. We are bound. We are, we are under uh, duress if we do not. Hey, we have an obligation to thank God for you because we recognize that God is the one. God is the source for this church. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says there in verse 5, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So there they took the gospel to the church at Thessalonica, but the gospel was not limited to the word preached by human lips. The gospel was not limited to the word preached by human understanding. The word of God was preached in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, a trinity of effectiveness from a triune Godhead, a trinity of power of the Holy Ghost, of much assurance that the word of God was preached in at Corinth, at Thessalonica that resulted in the birth of this church. And Paul says, we are bound to give thanks. Over in 1 Corinthians, he says, the natural man receiveth not the things of God. They are foolishness to him. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He says, which, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But here the Apostle Paul does not give credit to erudition. He does not give credit to theological learning. He does not give credit to a seminary, to his old alma mater. The Apostle Paul does not give credit to human engineering and human eloquence for the work that God did in the, for the birth of the church at Thessalonica. He does not give credit to the lineage and heritage of churches from which sprang this church. He does not give credit to his old pastor. He he does not give credit to his Sunday school teachers. The apostle Paul here gives credit to God. And here we see the providential care of God for his church. And it is absolutely necessary to understand that Jesus Christ alone builds his church. Go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is a very powerful and very important passage of scripture, often misused, often mistaught. Here in this passage of scripture, the apostle Peter is being addressed by Jesus Christ and he's given the keys to the kingdom there. And in verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And what is it that was revealed to Simon Barjona? Simon had just said, Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ means the Messiah God. Christ means God in eternity past who was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory even as of the only glory, as even as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ is the child that would be born, prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Ever everlasting father, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Jesus Christ is the prince of peace. Jesus Christ is the mighty God. Jesus Christ is the everlasting father. Jesus Christ is Christ. When you say Jesus, it speaks of the manhood, of the humanity of Christ. Whenever you say Christ, you're speaking of the deity of Christ. The word Christ in and of itself means in its, in its most basic scriptural understanding and definition. The word Christ means God in the flesh. Jehovah God made flesh. Some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Every time it says Christ in your Bible, it is telling you the mighty God, the everlasting father straight out of Isaiah 9, 6 and countless other Old Testament scriptures. They actually are countable. Thankfully, the Lord did not uh, make an infinite Bible for our finite minds. He gave us a little Bible, 66 books of the Bible. 
wherein is contained all the truth that you will ever need to know in this life about God. And anything outside of this Bible is false. We'll find that out in just a little bit. Just lost some of you right there. I can't help you. Listen, I've got nothing outside of this Bible. If you think I can help you outside of this Bible, you've come to the wrong place. Now, here Jesus talking to the Apostle Peter in Matthew 16, he says, Whom say men that I am? Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of, let's see, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Here we find again Simon Peter is being, God is crediting Simon Peter's understanding of who Christ is to the work of the Holy Spirit of God, just as Paul the Apostle in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3 is saying, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is me. He's thanking God because he understands that the natural man cannot receive the things of God. And here Jesus is crediting God the Father and God the Holy Ghost with revealing to him the nature of God the Son, that these three are one. And here Jesus says, I say also unto thee, verse 18, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now if your eyes shift from Christ to the rock that um, you think Peter is, you're off base. Peter's a stone, not a rock. Jesus said upon this rock, I will build my church. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, a rock hewn out without hands. The Bible says in Deuteronomy that God is the rock. We could preach all day just on the rock of ages, Jesus Christ. To claim that this rock here is in reference to Peter is blasphemous and flies in the face of all the rest of scripture that over and over and over and over and over again calls God himself the rock. Jesus is the rock. And upon the rock of Jesus Christ, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Bible tells us, and Peter himself tells us that we are lively stones built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets who are set upon the chief cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the rock. And Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. I will build my church. Help us, Lord, right now. Bind Satan, drive him back. Help us to preach. Lord, I can do nothing without thee. Without thee, I can do nothing, Lord. I have no power, no wisdom apart from thee. Help me, Lord, to preach your word. Help us to understand your word. Drive back the enemy. God, give us liberty today to preach your holy word. Give us unction and utterance for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Now here, Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. Jesus did not say, Peter will build my church. Jesus did not say, the pastor will build my church. Jesus did not say, the prophet will build my church. Jesus did not say, the pope will build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Now men build clubs and men build gatherings. Men build vineyards. Men build organizations. Men build buildings. Men build groups. Men build networks. But sticking a sign on the front that says, church, don't make it a church. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen to me, folks. Pronoun confusion did not start in the world. It started in the so-called church with so-called pastors, so-called prophets, so-called apostles. Everybody today thinks that if you stick a label on something, it's just got to be true. Whatever the sticker says is truth, regardless of what the contents are, and that's not the case. The Bible says that Jesus said, I will build my church and Jesus Christ alone builds his true church. True churches are birthed by the Holy Ghost. True churches are built by the risen Christ Jesus. True churches go to battle with the promise of the Father, power from on high, Holy Ghost conviction and convincing of sin of righteousness and of judgment, the power, the drawing power and convincing power of God working in the church and through the church. 
Here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. He then tells Peter that he would give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound on he- in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And then we go to Matthew 18, just a couple pages over in verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth, who are ye? Verse 17, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. He did not say, let him tell the synagogue. Now, some people want to contextualize away all of Christ's teachings, but Jesus Christ came to build his church and Jesus Christ taught his church and Jesus Christ here before the church is even formed, before the church is even birthed from the, from what would come on the day of Pentecost. Here he says to them here, if he neglect to hear the church and Jesus Christ speaking of the church says, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my father, which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, Peter did not need two or three to to agree with him to deal with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Ghost. He just said they would die and they died. They fell down dead. But guess what? The church doesn't need Peter to deal with Ananias and Sapphira today. We've got the same power in the body. We have the same promise in the body of Christ as the church of Jesus Christ, as Christ gave to Peter. There is no Pope on earth that can super can, can go past and circumvent the power that Christ gave to his church. Christ gave some authority to Peter, but then he gave equal authority to his church as he gave to Peter. We have the same power in the body of Christ. So here the apostle Paul says, we are bound to thank God always for you brethren. He thanks God for the providential care of God for his church. He thanks God for the providential illumination of his church. He thanks God for God's power to convince men and make them part of his church. He thanks God for God's, uh, God's presence in the church to carry the church forward and help the church to continue. The church had gone through hard times. We've seen how this was a church born in trouble, but God had maintained the church. And listen to me today, friends, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're born again by the power of God, you have God with you and you don't need prophets. You don't need apostles. You don't need any of the show. You don't need any of the lights and the fog. You've got God. If you're born again, you have the Holy spirit. If you're born again, the Bible says, if any man have not the spirit of God, he is none of his. If you do not have the spirit of God, you are none of his. If you are saved, if you're born again, you have the spirit of God living within you. And when you gather together, even with two or three gathered in my name, he says, there am I in the midst of you. Now we can, we're not going to chase all the rabbits that can spring out of this bush. We just trampled a bunch out. There's a whole bunch of rabbits going everywhere. I will say we're going to catch this one real quick. If you think that two or three of you gathering at the fishing dock to say a word of prayer before you run off and fish all day as a church, you have absolutely rested, twisted the scriptures to your own destruction. We have met much teaching already on the nature of a true church. You can go back and look at it through the hashtags if you want to um, see more about what we have to say about that. Study your Bible out. God's true church works under God's true authority and God does set up pastors. He sets up elders there in the church. He sets up teachers God's true church works through true authority. Now, how do you tell the true church from the false church? Help me, Lord, today. I've got nothing if you don't help me, Lord. I'm here in weakness, Father. Have mercy on me, Lord, and minister your word to your flock in Jesus' name, or it won't be done, Father. Help us in Jesus' name. So here he says in the second part of this verse that they thank God as it is meet because that your faith groweth exceedingly. It was necessary. He was bound to thank God. He could not take credit. The apostle Paul could not exalt himself and claim to be the source from which the church sprang. One man told me once as I was knocking doors, he said that that man said that he hated the apostle Paul. 
Boy, he's going to answer for that. Jesus says, if you receive that, um, how you receive his servants is how you receive him. So what he was really saying is he hates Christ. But anyway, he said he hated the apostle Paul without the apostle Paul, there would be no church. The apostle Paul would not have agreed with that statement at all. The apostle Paul called himself the chiefest of sinners. And the apostle Paul says, we are bound to thank God for you. He did not say God is bound to thank us for you. We are bound to thank God for you. I want you to understand today that whenever God births his church, God does it. And that only God does it, that no man can do it. Now we've got a plague going around our nation, an absolute plague of fake church planting running around all over the nation. People go out and they buy a building and they get chairs and they put out signs and they put a sticker on the front window and they put a a name up on the top and they put a sign out front and they say church and it ain't no church at all because a church is not a building. A church is the body of Christ. And until God saves sinners and brings them together, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, until God brings a church together, until God forms a church, it is no church. You can call it whatever you want. You can put the name on the sign. You can have all the credentials. You can have an office that says pastor on the door. You can have your articles of faith, your statement of faith. You can have a 501c3 tax exempt certification and a tax number. And you can even go down and get your tax exempt grocery store thing so you can buy your groceries without paying taxes. You can do whatever you want. But until God births a church, it is not a church. This is absolutely fundamental to understand. If you don't get this, you will be blown about by every wind of doctrine. You say, what makes a church a church? It's the statement of faith. That doesn't make a church a church. The church at Thessalonica was formed after three Sabbath days of reasoning together. I'll bet they didn't even know what plenary inspiration of the word of God meant. They had no clue. They could not write a coherent statement of faith that anybody would think anything of, yet God called them a church. And I'm telling you today, if God calls it a church, it's a church. And if God doesn't call it a church, it's not a church. Doesn't matter how many stickers you put on it to say church. It's not a church. There's a movement today to not even say church. It'll just say the vineyard, the cove, the the gathering, the vine. And they'll just say all these things. And you know what? At least they're being honest because it ain't no church. Never seen one of those that I've had any contact with that was even remotely a church. You say, how can you do that? You're judging. The Bible says, judge not that you be not judged. Well, the Bible also says he that is spiritual judgeth all things that he is judged of no man. He's the Bible says, judge righteous judgment. You're twisting scripture. You are supposed to judge. There's a time and a place for judgment and there's a time and a place not to judge. And you're warned that if you judge, you will be judged. And by the way, I dare you to judge me. I, I beg you to, to judge me by the word of God. That's the kind of judgment you're supposed to do. Get your Bible out and see if I'm telling you the truth. Don't just sit there like a lemming and listen to everything I say and go, oh, he just knows everything because I don't. If you don't get in the Bible for yourself, you're nothing but a tool. You're nothing but a tool. You've got to get in the Bible yourself and follow God yourself. And I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm just telling you, if you want to be, if you want to follow Christ, you better get grounded and settled in the word of God yourself. You say, that's the pastor's job. Well, you are in for a a bad trip with a false prophet. If you're relying on the clergy to teach you the Bible and you don't read it and love it yourself, you are in for a fall. You are in for a false prophet. You are just, you're a sitting duck for the devil. And I love you enough to tell you the truth. Well, we might talk about that here in a little bit. So here he says that he's bound to give thanks for y'all as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. So here their faith is growing exceedingly and we can all say, woo, faith is growing exceedingly. So what does that mean? That means that I wear a t-shirt every Everywhere I go that says faith, love, and hope, and the greatest of these is love. And that means that I have a little cross necklace that I wear. And that means I have a bumper sticker that says God is good. And that means that I have a, a simply southern shirt that says he's my anchor. It means that I include God in my life by putting verses on. No, no, no. That's not faith at all. Faith is not just some kind of showy um, popsicle type Christianity. Faith is much deeper than that. Faith is believing. God 
God's word. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Faith is believing God's word. Faith is based in God's word. Without God's word, it's not faith at all. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. Here he says, now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now hold your place there. And in Luke chapter four, we find that Jesus says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, which is a direct quote of Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 in the Old Testament. Um, same thing there. I'll go ahead and turn there and read it to you. Uh, Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. It says that God humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. So which one is it? Does man live by the word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord? Or does man live by faith? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Absolutely not. The Bible does not contradict itself. What conclusion are we left with if we believe God's word? That faith and God's word are synonymous. They work together. They're not exactly synonymous. God's word is God's side of it. Faith is man's side of it. Faith is hearing and believing and obeying and God's word is what we hear and believe and obey. So here he says, the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Draw back from what? Draw back from your goose bumpy whirly bugs that you got when you went down to the church house and they turned off the lights and you all raised your hands and swayed back and forth and you bumped your hips into each other and saying the same thing over and over again. Is that faith? No, that's feelings. That soul had a man on the street just the other day, just yesterday, stand in the door of his house and tell me that he doesn't believe the Bible, but he believes God and that God is in him and part of him. And it, he knows it with his soul and he feels it. And that's what he knows is God. You know what that man worships? He worships his own soul. That man worships himself. He thinks he's God. He's worshiping his own soul. The Bible said, describes that as earthly, sensual, and devilish. And that's going on all over the place. Faith cometh by hearing, the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, and hearing by the word of God. We always go to Romans 11. Everybody loves to quote Romans 11, chapter 1 as the definition for faith because nobody understands it and it sounds high and philosophical. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, that is an absolutely true scripture. But the reason everybody loves it is because there's that they can just say it and sound like they know something without ever putting boots on their faith. When you say faith is the cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, nobody really quotes that one whenever you say what is faith. Why? Because they want a faith that is just this ephemeral substance that they can make metaphysical. What does metaphysical mean? Not reality, not real, something outside the bounds of reality, something that can be philosophically dealt with and played with in the mind. So they make, so guess what? They say faith is the metaphysical substance of things that we wish existed and the, and the evidence of things that we hope that we believe might be true somewhere. And that's what they mean when they say that verse. And they're using it like the old Peter Pan story where Tinkerbell's going to die, the little fairy. And the fairy's going to die if people don't believe in her. So everybody decides to believe in Tinkerbell and here she's alive. And that's how people think that faith is. They think that God is like Tinkerbell and that he's just sitting there wringing his hands, waiting on you to believe in him and transmit some of your soul power to him so that he can exist. Oh, he needs you so bad. Not true. God exists whether you believe in him or not. Here it does not say faith is some metaphysical substance. In other words, non-existent substance, which is a contradiction. It says here, faith is the substance. That means it is reality. As real as the ground that you're standing on. As real as the air that you're breathing. As real as the two by fours that built the walls in this building. As real as the bricks on the outside of the church house. Faith is substance. Faith is real. And how can faith be real if it's tickly feelings. It can't be. Faith is real because faith is based on the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without the word of God, all you have is metaphysics. Do you hear me today? That's Zen Buddhism. That's Eastern mysticism. All you have without the word of God is tickly feelings and metaphysics. Metaphysics. 
philosophies of men. All you have is ephemeral vapors of ideas and, and whirlybugs going up and down your spine. Faith apart from the word of God is mysticism. And it deals with demonology and devilish soul worship. I meet people all the time that tell me they have faith in God and they don't know the first thing about what the Bible says. If they know anything, they know a few things like, I desire above all things that thou shouldst prosper and be in peace and health. And then they know, judge not that ye be not judged. And they know a few things like, Jesus turned water into wine and he didn't throw a stone at the adulterer, so drink it up and shack up because Jesus loves everybody. And that is not faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for because it is founded on the real, literal, present, preserved, inspired word of God. If you do not have the literal word of God, you do not have faith and cannot have faith. Faith is directly linked to the word of God. That's why there's such a battle against the preservation, the doctrine of the preservation of God's word. That's why there's such a battle over the inspiration of God's word, because if they can take this book away from you you don't have substance of anything don't you tell me that substance is metaphysical in that just a figure of speech it's not at all hebrews 11 1 faith is the substance of things hoped for i'm holding up in my hand substance here pages with ink on them that tell me god's mind they tell me exactly what god has said to the word not one jot not one tittle has been removed the exact perfect preserved inspired infallible word of of the living God in my hand right here. And that's how I have substance today to my faith. And that's how I have faith. The substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Now, what does that mean by evidence? Evidence in a court of law can be legal testimony. And you have in your hand, the old Testament and the new Testament, which are compilations of Holy ghost inspired eyewitness accounts and writings of holy men of God as that spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And therefore, hold up your Bible today. Therefore, when you hold up your Bible, you are holding up a legal brief. That's why it's so short, by the way, because it is a brief. You are holding up a legal document, the testimony of God's own word, telling you your sin, telling you of judgment to come, telling you of the righteousness of God and explaining to you the way of salvation. But you, you can put your Bibles down. Did you know that God did not write this book to give you all knowledge about him? Himself. He wrote this book so that you could be reconciled with him. This book is designed for one purpose, and that is that you might know God. And it is God's legal testimony regarding the truth of our standing before God in our sin and our desperate need of a Savior. Therefore, this book is the evidence of things not seen. This faith, the substance, is right here in the Word of of God. If you make faith metaphysical, you make your whole religion metaphysical. It's all fake. It's all without substance. And that's where we're at today. Every church nearly that I drive by and I drive by them by the dozens and my heart breaks for them because they don't have substance. They don't have evidence. They have whirly bugs. They have feelings. They have doctrines of men, but they don't have the word of the living God. And they don't believe they can have the word of the living God. And they don't even have Christianity anymore. It's an empty shell of philosophies of men because they've left the faith. Paul says here, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. How does faith grow? Well, I went down by the river to pray and study about that good old way. And so because I wanted to show my faith, I jumped backwards off of a bluff 10 feet above the water and landed on my back and it didn't kill me. Tomorrow I'm going to try 12 feet. My faith will grow. I'm hoping I can work up to about 80 feet laying on my back. It'll be a great show. We'll get people from all over to come and watch my faith. You know, that's what the Hindus do. They walk on coals to show you their faith. Barefoot. They climb sword ladders to show you their faith. 
You know, pagans do this stuff all the time. What do we do in America? Oh, we handle snakes. We go to our healing conventions and all this kind of stuff. We get whirly bugs up and down our spine. Whenever he said, as it is meat, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, your faith groweth exceedingly. He was saying that the understanding and obedience of the church to the word of God was constantly increasing. He was saying that this church was becoming more biblical every day. Their faith was growing exceedingly. And that is, by the way, where we're supposed to be a work in progress. This thing where, oh, I'm just a work in progress, so I'm going to go on and live in sin. What a lie and what a sham. Matthew 7 and verse 20. <coughs> Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Oh, I wish I just knew what the will of God is for my life. It's right in front of you. It's called the Bible. Read it. Obey it. It's God's will. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. These guys are casting out devils in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, you're going to hell, sinners. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Oh, they can put on a show, but they're not adhering to the word of God. They've ignored the will of the father. Look what he says in verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, Jesus is the word. I'm reading you the word, the sayings of Christ. Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. There's that rock again. Oh, Simon Peter. Absolutely not. You can't get that anywhere in the scripture. You can twist it in Matthew 16. That's the only place that you can rest it to even look like Peter. Everywhere else in this Bible, the rock is Jesus. We even have a song. This rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus. God's only son. Be very sure. Be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. He says here, he's founded on the rock because he hears and he does. He obeys. Verse 26, and everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. <coughs> And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That's why they hate the Bible, because Jesus teaches as one having authority. And when the Bible says, thus saith the Lord, people get all cringy because there's no wiggle room left to make excuses for their sin. So that's why we've thrown out the Bible in America. I don't know more than a handful of churches per state that actually even still preach the Bible that haven't just given it over and sold it out for a bunch of fake copies full of blasphemies and errors that men have created. And they want it that way. And they'll tell you all the Bibles have mistakes in them. They're liars. James chapter 2. You say, well, how can you believe that? It's called faith, believing God's word. You don't believe it because you don't have faith. James chapter 2 and verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Or if a brother, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute, destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Say thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. 
We'll finish this chapter two here out in just a second. Here, James is telling us that faith, if it hath not works, is dead. He's been pretty plain about that. Faith that doesn't do is not faith at all. I often use this analogy when dealing with people on the street that tell me they believe God, but their works deny him. And I'm trying to share with them the word of God and and provoke them to think about their eternal state and condition in the light of God's word instead of the whirly bugs that went up and down their spine whenever they thought that they got saved. And instead to look to the Lamb of God and the word of God. And I'll share this with them. I'll tell them, uh, I'll say, listen, if I was sitting on my couch and you saw me through the window and you saw fire coming out of the roof and you beat on the side of the house and shouted fire fire and I said I believe you I believe you and I sat there on my couch would you agree with me that I believed you or would you say I was a liar and they all without fail say you're a liar if you do that now I haven't used that yet on somebody that deals with Christian Scientology and stuff where nothing is any reality and everything is relative those guys there's not much help for Unless the Holy Ghost just grabs a hold of them. But whenever I ask them that, they say, well, you'd be a liar. And I say, so you're telling me that if I don't get up and run out of the house, I don't believe it's on fire. They agree with that. And then I point them to this fact that God says faith without works is dead. You say you believe God, but you don't read the Bible. You say you believe God, but you don't even know the Bible. You say you believe God, but you don't keep his commandments. Did you know that John said, hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments? He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You say you know God, but you don't obey God. God calls you a liar. God said it. I'm just telling you what God said. I'm not the one calling you a liar. It's God. You're going to have to deal with God. If you say you love God, but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. And you say, oh yeah, but I do keep his commandments, but you don't even read your Bible. You don't even know the Bible. You just know a bunch of man-made doctrine. What's got into us today? A bunch of devils is what's got into us. Now the here he says, because your faith groweth exceedingly. So the growth of faith is what? It is, at, it is the adherence to the word of God. True growth of faith is not doing miracles and signs and wonders. I'm not against God doing miracles, okay? I, I, I love it when God does miracles. The biggest miracle God's ever done in my life is saving my soul from hell. But he's done some other miracles, like when my engine blew and my suburban. We were out trying to do God's work and we had nowhere to go and nowhere to fix it. And my kids all got her and said, daddy, let's pray. And I said, okay, whatever, let's pray. And I said, God, you're going to be in trouble now. They think you can fix the motor. And they all prayed. And then they asked me to start it. And I said, oh God, now you're really in trouble because they're going to see it's not fixed. And I went out and turned the key and that thing purred like a kitten. Although it was a, yeah, I won't get into all that. It was a nice, great big gas hog motor that actually rumbles. So praise God for that. Anyway, it rumbled like a lion, I should say, or a bear. And there those kids stood just grinning ear to ear while their faithless daddy stood there shaking his head because he had doubted God and they had believed God. And that's a miracle. And if you don't believe that can happen today, according to thy faith, be it unto you, take it to the mechanic. Sometimes I still take it to the mechanic. Anyway, (coughs) more often than not, I take it to the mechanic. Um, so God, I'm all for God doing miracles, but the reality of faith is that faith is obedience to the word of God. Faith is not jumping off of a cliff into a dark cloud and hoping you make it to the bottom. Faith is not just hoping for things that don't exist as if they do exist. I know the Bible talks about calling things that are not as though they are, but it's talking about things that God said. It's talking about founding that in what God said. Abraham didn't have a son. Sarah could not have a child. And yet they believed what God said and called things that were not as though they were. And they saw the promise come to fruition. It was based in God's word. So faith is adherence to God's word. The evidence of true faith, you want to see somebody that's really full of faith, you find somebody that loves the word of God and obeys it. And when you find somebody that loves the word of God and obeys it, you just met somebody that's full of faith. It's not by the size of the mountain that you move that your faith is judged, but by your obedience to the word of God that your faith will be judged because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Disobedience to the word of God, deviation from God's word is evidence of unbelief. 
Our churches are everywhere departing from the word of God, evidencing their unbelief. So he says here in the latter part of this verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. So the exercise of faith, as their faith grew exceedingly, their faith produced fruit. Jesus said, ye shall know them by their fruit. And here the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Go to 1 Corinthians. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We got to finish James. So here this exercise of faith brings about fruit. Here in James chapter 2 and verse 19, he said, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now here he is going to be giving you, James here is coming from the human perspective, from brother to brother, wilt thou, he says, thou sayest, thou hast faith. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith. This is from man to man perspective. You're not proving your faith to God. God already sees whether or not you have faith. God will expose whether or not you have faith. But here he's, this, this is man to man. How do you know somebody has faith? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? Abraham's faith in his heart worked itself out in obedience to what? To God's word. If Abraham had gone up there to sacrifice Isaac on an altar in Mount Moriah because he had had a dream about it and decided to go do it to prove to God how much he loved God, would that be faith? No, Abraham did what he did because God told him to do it. And that's why it was faith. Obedience to God's word is faith. And so Abraham was justified by works, it says here, whenever he obeyed God and did what God said. Now, he wasn't justified in the sight of God. He was justified in the sight of man. His faith in his heart was brought to bear on the outside and he was justified in the the sight of man by his works. And this is what it's talking about. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now faith that will not obey God in front of men is not real faith before God. So faith without works is is a faith that does not believe God. So moving on here to 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible says in Ephesians that the fruit of the spirit is, and it begins with love. 1 Corinthians 13 is inaccurately translated by most people today as the word love, and it should be the way the Bible says it, charity. The difference between charity and love is that love is more general and feelings and charity is more direct direct, focused, and working. Charity is boots on the ground love. Did you know that God is a God of love, but he says that he's also the God of war, that he's a God of war, and that he makes war, that he's angry, he's jealous? 1 Corinthians 13. Charity is boots on the ground love. Follow after, he says here, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. By the way, 1 Corinthians 13 is not about tongues. He's trying to get the Corinthian church to stop talking about tongues for a little while and look deeper than external manifestations in whirly bugs. He's trying to get people to look at the heart of the issue. So he turns their attention towards charity. If you make first Corinthians 13 about tongues, you blow out the context and you miss one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity. I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. By the way, truth is not always nice. Truth is not always soft. 
charity rejoiceth in the truth. Charity, verse 7, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, stay on charity. Focus on charity. We're not talking about tongues today. Look at this. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. What are the childish things that he's talking about? external manifestations instead of a internal faith that moves the person to live like Christ lives. He says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known and now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. He says here in our text that the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Christ is the embodiment of charity and Christ rebukes sin. Christ's first message that he preached in Matthew 4, 17 recorded in the scriptures is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, calling people to turn from their sin. Christ preached hell hotter than any preacher I've ever heard. In fact, any preacher I've ever heard biblically preach on hell had to use every Everything that Christ said to preach on it. Christ is a hellfire and brimstone preacher. But he did it with love, even though he did it with ferocity. Now, you want to make Christ this mealy-mouthed, weepy person because you think that meekness means effeminence, and it doesn't. Christ was a manly man. Christ was a man's man, and Christ spoke with authority, and they hated him for it. Christ didn't get up there in some kind of weak sing-song voice and ask everybody to please do better for Jesus because he loves you so much. Christ got up there, and he said, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe unto you lawyers. And he called them vipers. He said, children of your father, the devil. He said, if I would say something like you're saying, I'd be liars like unto you. Jesus told it straight and Jesus told it hard, but Jesus told it with love, with charity. And he evidenced it by the way that he lived his life and loved these people. Did you know that the healing ministry of Christ was not Christ's main gig, so to speak? It was not his main ministry. I shouldn't have even said gig. It wasn't a show. It was reality. Christ's main ministry was not healing. He often told people, don't even tell anybody that you got healed. Why? Because the crowds would throng him to be healed so much that he wouldn't have any ability to preach. One of the villages there in Galilee said, oh, Jesus, Jesus, please stay with us. Live with us forever. He says, no, I've got to go to the next villages also and preach. He said, for that's why I was sent. Jesus came to preach the gospel. Jesus came to tell people that they were on their way to hell and that they were condemned already and that he didn't come to condemn them. They were already condemned and that they needed to believe the gospel and be saved. Ephesians 5, 14 t- speaks of speaking the truth in love. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 talks about a work of faith and a labor of love. Another place in the Bible says faith that worketh by love. So the charity of this church increased amongst them. Their faith was growing exceedingly and their charity, every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. So they were suffering long with each other. They were telling the truth to each other. They were not suffering sin in one another. They would rebuke one another whenever they needed it and exhort one another, but at the same time, forgive one another. Remember that their faith is based on the word of God. This idea of charity that we have in our churches, which means that you go out and get a 501c3 and get rich taking donations. I'm not getting on that right now. Anyway, this idea of charity where you just give stuff willy nilly to anybody that you can come into contact with end hunger, end poverty. These kinds of charities are not Christ's kind of charity. You say, well, Christ fed the multitudes twice. He fed them twice. And when they came back to him for bread again, he told them not to seek the bread that perisheth, but to seek the living bread. He did it as an illustration, and he did it as a kingdom sign to show them that he was God in the flesh.
He did not go around feeding people for the sake of ending poverty and ending hunger. Instead, he went around preaching the gospel to the poor. This idea of charity that is works without truth, that is love without honesty, that is love without reality is without reality. It's metaphysical charity is what it is. It has no substance to it. It has no reality to it. So the faith that here that is growing exceedingly in this church, their adherence to the word of God, their close lockstep walk with God that was growing every day, redounded and exposed itself in the fruit of charity one to another. You say, how can that be? You see a lot of people out here today, maybe you're one of them out there listening to me today. You think that strict means no love. You think that law means no love. You think that rules mean no love. You think that anybody that has any requirements for you cannot possibly love you. I've got news for you. God has the ultimate requirements for you. He said, be ye holy as I am holy. God said, be ye therefore perfect. Jesus Christ, Matthew 5, 48, be ye therefore perfect, even as your father, which in, which in, which is in heaven is perfect. And that perfect there means perfect. That's God's standard. The fact that we don't measure up doesn't change God's word. It means perfect. And yeah, we don't measure up. That's why he told us to repent. That's why we need a savior. That's the whole purpose. That's what Jesus was trying to show them. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. God's measure is perfection. God does not love you just the way you are. Do you hear me? That's a lie. Oh, God loves you just the way you are. Lie, lie, lie. The Bible says you are dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. God says that God will judge the wicked. He judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. God loves you and he wants you to repent and become like him. And he will do the work to make you like him through adherence to the word of God, believing and obeying the word of God. God will change you into his image. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Wait, if God loves you just the way you are, why in God's own name would he make you a new creature when he saves you? He does not love you just the way you are. He hates your sinful existence, your rebellion against him. He hates the body of death. I'm not talking about your physical body, but your sin nature that is in you. He created you for his purpose. Sin has destroyed you and wrecked you. By the way, if God loves you just the way you are, then why would he give you a new body in heaven? Come on, let's get back to the Bible. God does not love you just the way you are. God loves you in spite of the way you are. God loves you, though, with charity. God loves you enough that he died for your sins and he was buried and he rose again the third day so that if you will repent of your sins and believe the gospel, you can be saved. And when he saves you, guess what he does? He changes you. He makes a new creature within you and he crucifies your flesh. That's what the Bible teaches. He loves you just the way you are. No, if you get saved, your flesh will be nailed to the cross with Christ. Your flesh will be nailed to the cross if you ever get saved. He doesn't save you just the way you are. You come to him just in your sin as you are in the sense of without, without trying to turn over a new leaf. But he changes you to save you. And if he doesn't change you, he didn't save you. Second Timothy says, hold fast the form of sound words. Go there. Second Timothy. Let's see if we can find that verse real quick and we'll wrap this thing up. Second Timothy. I'm going to skip several verses here. We could go to so many more verses. Holding faith in a good conscience, faith in a pure conscience, the fight of faith, unfeigned faith, faith and patience, trial of faith, all kinds of different aspects that this faith works out in um, the daily life of the believer to produce true Christ likeness and true charity. Second Timothy, um, second Timothy here. I did not write down the chapter and verse. Hold fast. Where is that? 13 chapter one, verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. If you depart 
apart from the word of God, you do not love God and you do not love men and you do not have faith in God. Faith, the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to, to please God for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That faith is based on the word of God. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. Here in our text, we had three parts. Thanksgiving to God for his providential care for the church. God is the source of all good in the church. God is the author, the builder, the finisher of the church. He, Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. We looked at the evidence of a true, of true good in a church, faith growing exceedingly. Any church so-called that departs from the word of God is not a church. They cease to be a church when they cease to follow the word of God. And then finally, the charity of every one of you toward you all aboundeth the fruit of God's good working in the church. Father, help us today. I can't seem to stay on time. True churches are birthed by the Holy Ghost. Some of these are operating in the power of the Holy Ghost under the leadership of the Holy Ghost. These are true churches. Some have sin in the church and are under chastening as a church. Some the church is in sin and under judgment. Those churches who failed to repent during judgment have had the candlestick removed. So this is why you can't just go around saying because this church doesn't do this or does that. They're not a true church. It's not quite as simple because they might be a true church under judgment. They might be a true church, but they might be in um, chastening by God during that time. And you don't know. So you'd best be careful how you deal with the individual churches. Any church that leaves the true word of God that, is, that God does not bring back is a false church. False churches are those that are formed by man. Formed by man. Any church formed by man. However well-intentioned and no matter how good the doctrine, how biblical the church polity, a true church becomes a false church when it continues to operate as a church after the candlestick has been removed. A church is built by Christ. It's brought together by Christ. Now, and by the way, you, you say, well, if they really hold to the words of God, won't they be formed by Christ? Well, if they truly do, they will. But they may have all the right doctrinal statement. They might have the right statement of faith. They might, it might look exactly right. They might have the perfect title on the outside of the building and say all the right things when you walk inside, but still not be a true church because they're not in subjection to the head, Jesus Christ. So a true church becomes a false church when it continues to operate as a church after the candlestick has been removed. When God comes in chastening and they rebel, then God brings judgment. If a church rebels, he removes the candlestick. When God removes the candlestick, it doesn't matter who started the church. It doesn't matter how many souls got saved. It doesn't matter what great doctrines were taught at that church. When the candlestick is removed, they are no longer a church. And when they try to act like a church without the candlestick in place, the Holy Spirit of God burning in the midst, they become a false church. A false church can look like a true church to all but those who have been filled with the spirit of God and know the holy fire of God is holy flame because a false church can offer strange fire like Nadab and Abihu, but they will not be judged or chastened. How do you know that you're dealing with a false church when they can go on in unrepentance, offering strange fire to God, another gospel, another spirit. They throw the Bible out. They teach for commandment, the doctrine of men, and they continually year after year operate without the power of the Holy spirit and in disobedience to the commands of Christ. And yet God does not deal with them. God does not chasten them. They, they thrive. They grow, they expand their, their horizons of their ministry, ministry broadens. You have absolute definite evidence at that point that you're dealing with a false church because God does not recognize false churches. They are satanic. They're operating under satanic power and God does not mess with them. He lets them do their thing. So if you think that growth is evidence of a church, you're going to probably end up in one of Satan's churches too. A true church in the process of being birthed may be hard to distinguish what it really is until birth, but then it will be obvious. 
Father, in Jesus' name, please take this lesson and use it, Lord. Apply it to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to follow you. Help us to be real. Help us to be right with you. Lord, we pray that you would get all the glory for us and for our lives. We give you thanksgiving, Lord. We're bound to give you thanks because of what you've done, Lord, in our lives. We thank you, Father. We thank you for our faith growing in the word of God and obedience to the word of God, adherence to the word of God. We thank you, Father, for your holy word that we can trust your perfectly preserved, inspired, infallible word of God. Lord, we also just want to give you praise and glory, Father, for the charity, Lord, that you give to your people, Lord. And we see the evidence of that amongst your true people, Father God, not this willy nilly handout stuff, but Father, true charity, truly looking after one another's true needs, Father, and not just giving blindly, Father, but giving in accordance with how, with the way the Holy Spirit leads. I pray, Father, that you would continue to increase our charity one for another. And Lord, that you would um, raise up true churches in every city across this nation. Lord, where there are no true churches, that you would raise up true churches. I pray, Lord God, that you'd expose the false, Lord, and make them ever more evidently false. Lord, turn them over, Father. Those that have rebelled against you, Father, the candlestick's been removed. Those that have been formed by Satan, Lord, with all their demonic practices, they claim you in name only, Father. They deny your power. They deny your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would turn them over to Satan. Lord God, that he would be able to just twist them, Father, beyond recognition as a true church, Father, that anybody with any kind of sense of the things of God would be able to clearly see and discern that they are of another spirit and another gospel and they have nothing to do with Christ. Lord, I ask this not, Lord, for personal vindication or vengeance, but rather, God, for Christ's sake and the gospel's sake and the true church's sake, Lord. Lord, in the lost sake, Lord, who will come to Christ, Lord, whenever they see Jesus Christ lifted up in truth, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake, amen.